scripture reading today is from Isaiah 1, uh, verse 1 through 10 and 15 through 18. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart is afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only the wounds and welts, and open sores, not cleans or bandaged, or stews with uh, olive oil. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stri- stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as, you, as, when, as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in the vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. When you spread, it, spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Amen. Amen. Yeah, good morning and uh, welcome to the Christmas season. And for a lot of people, and maybe this is you, uh, Christmas can be complicated. Because as you know, there's all the stuff associated with Christmas, right? There's the, yeah, there's the parties, which are fun, but by like the 15th one, by the end of the month, you feel a little bit tired, yeah, and you're looking at me with energy right now, thinking about the month ahead, but you're looking at me like runners look at the beginning of a marathon, right? Like, this is going to be fun, this is going to be great, but by the end, they're claw- you know, crawling across the finish line, exhausted, and that's how Christmas can feel sometimes, you know, I was thinking about it, it's like Americans, we don't spend any time with each other all year long, and then we try to cram it all into one month at the end of the year, and no wonder we feel exhausted by New Year's and organizing all the food and all the the parties and all the hangouts so it can be complicated. But there's not just the parties, right? There's the the presents, there's the planning, there's the decorating, there's the putting up of the lights or the hiring up of the lights, as some of you do now to avoid scarring the children and avoid teaching them words not generally associated with holiday cheer and... The putting up of the lights and the decorating, it can get complicated. And there's not just the parties, not just the presents, there's also the people and sometimes, all the time, actually 
compared to the people, the parties and the presents are really easy, right? Because it's the people that get complicated. It's the people who are complicated. I mean, compared to the messiness of people at the, hol- at the holidays, the, the presents and all the paper and all the dishes you do and all the travel and the logistics. So that's simple. It's the people who are complicated and that's what makes Christmas complicated because Christmas can also be a reminder of the complication of broken relationships, the reminder of the ways maybe your life is broken bad throughout the year, and a, another reminder of all the things in your life or in our nation that yet again over the last 12 months no one's managed to figure out how to fix. But I know, and I know that you know, that that's not what Christmas is supposed to be about. It's not. Christmas isn't supposed to be complicated it's not supposed to be pressure packed to make sure that you you get it all in or to make sure you work every little thing out and you make sure that everyone's happy no one's mad at you it's not supposed to be something that breaks you or bankrupts you or exhausts you or makes you even want to fast forward to valentine's day christmas isn't supposed to be complicated it's supposed to be simple christmas at its core isn't about making sure that you don't fail as a parent Or it's not about making sure you don't just, you know, max out your budget and your margins and spend so much money Dave Ramsey gets mad at you. No, Christmas isn't supposed to be complicated. It's supposed to be simple because Christmas is about one thing. Christmas is about a promise. It's about a promise. And if you were to peel back all the commercials, right, uh, all the ones with the, the luxury cars with the red bows on top, all the commercials with the, with the diamond stores who only advertise once a year and know how to make every guy in here feel really, really guilty. Maybe it's just me. If you were to peel all that back underneath it all, there's a promise. A promise. And this promise is new. This promise actually is really old. This promise is older than our lifetimes. It's older than our nation. The promise of Christmas is older than Christmas itself. The promise of Christmas didn't start on Christmas or even begin with Christmas. The promise of Christmas was made almost 3,000 years ago, about 800 years before Jesus was ever born. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. I want to look at the promise of Christmas Three three elements to it, why the promise, to what the promise, and then how the promise can be yours today. First, let's look at why the promise, and the promise of Christmas began with an interesting person. It was a a man, actually. The promise of Christmas began with a man whose nation was a complicated mess in his day. He lived in a time when his nation was falling apart. People around him had begun to forget God and forget what he had done for them, and this man's name was Isaiah. And Isaiah was a prophet. And prophets in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament when prophets were really interesting people. And prophets were a kind of a watchdog over the people because years before this, the nation of Israel had made a covenant with God at a place called Mount Sinai after God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And God said to them, he looked at them at that mountain and he said, I chose you not because you're special or significant. Matter of fact, you're, you're, you're kind of puny. You're, you're, you're kind of small. You're nobody. You couldn't even save yourself, but I've saved you and I've set my love on you, set my affection on you. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to give you my law. And if you obey that, you'll be my God. I'll be your God. You'll be my people and I'm going to bless you. 
And then a kind of a, a marriage ceremony there at the foot of Mount Sinai, Israel promised, they swore they would be faithful to God, they'd keep his laws, keep his covenant. And God raised up, though, over time, when Israel began to prosper, when Israel began to grow self-sufficient, they began to turn their back on God, forget who God was and what he had done for them, and God raised up these prophets, these covenant watchdogs, to call the people back to the covenant they had made. And in Isaiah's day, oh, things, they weren't good. They were a complicated mess. Let's look at it. We'll begin here in chapter 1. Isaiah, in his term, in his first term as a prophet here, he begins and he looks up. He's got something in his heart to say. And he says to the nation, in his very first words, he says, uh, verse 2, he says, Hear me, you heavens, listen earth, for the Lord has spoken. So he's launching out his ministry. Isaiah is beginning his term as a covenant watcher. And he's starting off saying right off the bat, this is what God is saying to you. And I mean, what would God say, right? What direction is Isaiah's covenant watching about to go in? Because here, you know, if you've ever seen uh, the first episode of a TV series, right? The first episode is called what? It's called Yeah, the pilot, and the pilot does what? It sets up the plot. It shows the direction the story is going to go in. And so what's the storyline going to be in Isaiah? Look at this. God says, next verse, he says, God says, I reared children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. So God's saying here, I'm like a parent. I'm like a mother or a father, and my children have rebelled against me. And if you're a parent today with a child like this, oh, you can begin to imagine the pain that God as a parent's feeling in his heart. He's pleading through his prophet to the people so they can see their true condition. And he says this, woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. And next verse, God's about to remind the people what's already been going on. In their land, he says, from the sole of your foot to the top of your head, no soundness, only wounds, welts, sores. You're not bandaged or cleansed. Verse 7, your country is desolate, cities burned with fire, fields being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. What's this all about? Well, in Isaiah's day, Israel had really been split, you may know this if you know your Bible, into two nations. There was the nation, the northern nation of Israel, of the ten tribes to the north, across the state line, so to speak. And there were the two tribes of Judah in the south, and that's where Isaiah was. Isaiah lived in Judah and prophesied to Judah. And in Isaiah's day, the northern kingdom, those ten tribes across the state line, the Rio Grande, had already been conquered by the Assyrian Empire, one of the early national empires, multinational empires, early superpowers in human history. And the the Assyrians, they were awful. They were like the Nazis of their day. They would come in and destroy civilizations and do violence systematically against women. They would wipe out populations, seed it with their own sons and daughters and destroy culture, replace it with their own. And so Israel, the northern kingdom, they had begun to decline long before the nation of the south and Judah. They had violated their marriage vows, been unfaithful to God, though God had delivered them from slavery and he'd raised up covenant watcher after covenant watcher to remind them and call them back God. Now, like a parent whose child has told them 
They don't want their father in their future. God's allowed them to choose their own future. And Israel chose a future without its father. As a result, God allowed the nation to be disciplined by the nation of Assyria to bring judgment against it. And now God's saying through Isaiah to Judah, he's saying, look, look at your people to the north. Look at those 10 tribes. Look at them right in front of your eyes. Oh, their land is being beaten. Their land's being overthrown, laid waste. Look what's happened to your brothers and sisters. It's They're in pain before your eyes. And then verse 8, he says to you, Oh, daughter, Zion, you're left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Daughter Zion is a reference to the city of Jerusalem, the capital of Judah in the south. And God is saying here, Judah, Jerusalem, you're like a little hut in a field. You're like a little, you're like a little, um, a little, uh, a little outpost there, a little booth. You're the only thing still standing in this field. The field has been laid waste in your little hut, your little booth, your little city is the only part of my field and vineyard. It hasn't been cut down. Of course, if you're hearing this, your heart would have sunk at hearing all this, not just at what you heard, but at what you were about to hear, because it's actually going to get worse. Judah, he says, you're like a hut still standing. You're the only little house on the prairie that hasn't been burned down yet. But then God says, verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah, what does God call them here? Oh, it's stunning. Sodom and Gomorrah, every Jew would have known this reference. Likely you do too. Sodom and Gomorrah were cities back in Genesis chapter 18 and 19 that God had judged and brought to ruin because of their sin. And yes, it was because of their sexual sin, the perverted ways they expressed that, but it was also because of something else. Because in Genesis 18, God said about Sodom and Gomorrah, he said, there's an outcry that's reached my ears against them. And the word outcry in the Old Testament is the word used to describe the cry of a people, a heart cry, giving their prayers to God for God to come and deliver them from the oppression and the exploitation of the bully up the street. There's been an outcry, God said, levied against Sodom and Gomorrah. And God said, their cry of the people around those cities, it's reached me. I've got to do something about it. I've got to judge them. Of course, especially right now, if you're new this morning, this is your first time back in church in a while. Your friend arm twisted you into coming to the Christmas thing at church. You're saying, oh God, this is, this is my Sunday. This is why I left church in the first place. Right? This is why I quit coming. All the judgment, all the wrath. I just want a God of love. But look, look. You can't have it both ways. Because what does a God, hear this, who loves people do? Hmm? Yes, he forgives. Yes, he gives. he's got to give mercy. But what must he do to be truly loving? Oh, it's the same thing you must do. You've got you've to defend the kid against the bully, from the bully. You've got to defend the powerless against their oppressor. See, you've got to bring down a system that brutalizes and grinds down the powerless. If you take away, therefore, the justice and the wrath of God, you make him less loving. You make him less loving. You should actually want God to do this. You should root for God to do this because that's what love does. It brings justice. 
And that was Sodom's and Gomorrah's story. Two cities who were so unjust and wicked, God had to do something about them. And now, can you imagine the shock of the people of Judah when Isaiah turns to them and says, you've been like a hut still standing, you've been like a little house on the prairie, but now, Judah, you're no longer like a hut that's escaped the fire, you are Sodom and Gomorrah. Are you encouraged yet this morning, church? (laughs) Merry Christmas to you all, aren't you glad you came? Oh, this is terrible here. God's saying, your wickedness is so complicated. Things have gone so wrong. Your hearts have betrayed me so deeply. There's no going back. You're like the cities I've had to judge, had to bring low. Now it's your turn. But, but now there's a really, really big problem here. And maybe you've seen it coming if you know your Bible a bit. Because if this happens... If Judah's light goes out in the world, what will happen to God's word to the world? This is a huge problem for God and really for us because back, 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 centuries before at the beginning of the Bible in Adam and Eve in the garden, God said, when you sin, oh, I'm I'm going to send a deliverer into the world. And later, when mankind looked like it was at a dead end again, God chose Abraham and said, Abraham, through your body, through your family, through your seed, I'm going to make a big family and nation. And through them, I'm going to bring up that deliverer and save the world. And then through Abraham's family, a whole nation was born and God chose a guy named David and he put him on the throne to be king of that nation of Abraham's family and he said, David, your throne, your line, it'll never end. It'll never end. David, your nation, your line is going to be a light to the whole world, not just to Jews, but to Gentiles, people everywhere. Your kingdom will grow and the whole world, David, is going to see who I am through you. But wait. If Judah's light goes out, what will happen to God's covenant? What will happen to all that he said? Will God be shown, proven to be a liar? Israel has been laid low to the north. Judah's turn is about to come. And what will happen if that happens to the rest of us, to the rest of the world? How can God's word come to pass? Can you see these people? They put him in a terrible bind between a rock and in a hard place. They were supposed to be the ones who represented God to the world, but now they look like everybody else. What was God supposed to do? How could the nation see who he was if Israel looked like everybody else and failed to represent him in the world? The people could ne- the world could never see who God is if he didn't judge them, and yet if God judges them, if he lays them low, there's no people anymore to represent God to the world. What is this terrible thing They've done to God. What can God do? What would he do? What did he do? Uh, Here's what God did. God made a promise. A promise. And he had made promises before, but this one was different. It, It felt different. Sounded different because it was different. Unlike any promise before it. Why? Oh, because here, for the first time in the book of Isaiah, God promised something we call Christmas number two. Number two. What was it? What was the promise? What was the first glimpse of Christmas Isaiah saw? It's here in verse 18. 
God says, come now, let us settle the matter. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they're going to be like wool. Oh, in one verse right here, church, God is promising something Isaiah would have thought was impossible. What was it? Oh, because here in verse 18, God is calling Israel and Judah into a courtroom. This is legal language he's using here in Hebrew. He's summoning them like a judge summons a defendant into the courtroom and God brings up, he says, your sins, plural, sins. What were they? What were Judah's sins? Well, on one hand, they were personal sins because back in verse four, we read it, God said, you're a people full of guilt. This is the Hebrew word for moral guilt, for personal moral depravity, personal moral perversity. The people, if you know the context and the background over in Kings and Chronicles, they'd become sexually perverse, individually corrupt. They ignored God's commands his right to their bodies. They say, we want to live however we want to live. God, keep your laws off our bodies. But it wasn't just personal sins God was calling them to account for. The other sin was a corporate sin, a structural sin, a national sin, if you will. Look at verse 16 and 17. He said, take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn, he said, to do right. Seek justice, defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Oh, he's saying, your other sin is you don't know how to do right in my sight. And what's right in God's sight? He says it this way. He says, it's seeking justice. Defending the oppressed. And here's the key. Taking up the cause of the fatherless. See, doing justice, mishpat in the Bible, isn't just not doing wrong. It's not just not individually hurting someone. Doing justice only happens when you, and this is the key phrase, take up the cause of a people in need. And God's saying because you have not taken up the cause of the fatherless, you're sinning, you're breaking my heart. And in one chapter, can you see, God just blown the lid off of all of our concepts of good and bad and right and wrong and liberal and conservative. The, 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 the traditional liberal perspective of morality says, oh, the really bad ones are the ones who don't take up the cause, right? Don't do justice. The really bad ones are those who won't care for the fatherless. And look here in the Bible, God, God judges those who won't do that. We'll, we'll kind of turn a blind eye to people's individual and sexual sins because God cares about something bigger. God cares about dealing with unjust structures. And God does care about that. But the conservative view of morality says, oh, what God cares about is my private ethics, my personal morality, about being faithful to my wife, faithful to my kids, faithful to my church, to God. Eh, not to talk about justice in there, but how can people be just if they don't start at home, right? So God, look, look in the Bible. God's judging people here for their perversity. Eh, we'll let that social justice stuff go because we haven't sinned sexually and therefore we're okay. Can you see both the traditional, liberal, and conservative understanding of sin are only half-baked. Both of them minimize, they trivialize what God cares about. And therefore, both of them reduce God. Is God judging Judah here for their lack of personal morality or their lack of concern for unjust structures? The answer is, of course, what? 
Yes. The answer is yes. Yes. You know where I'm going with this. And he calls him, therefore, into his courtroom and says, in a sense, all you liberals, all you conservatives, all you who care only about social sins, but you ignore your own private ones, and all you conservatives who only care about the private stuff, but you don't take up the cause of the needy and the fatherless, I'm calling all of you into my courtroom for all of your sins. And I'm going to hold all of you accountable. And then he says this, and it's meant to be a bit sarcastic and funny. He says, hmm, let's reason together. Hmm. What ought to happen to you for all of this, right? Let's put our minds together. Let's talk it out. Let's look at the facts, daughter of Zion. What are they? Look at him. All your sins. Ways you've broken the world, broken your bodies, broken my heart. Look at that. And let's reason out what should happen. What's reasonable? What ought to happen to you? What ought to happen to you, Judah, for centuries of covenant breaking? What's just? Let me ask you, church. What's just and fair and reasonable for you to seemingly do to someone who's broken your heart, broken your family, not cared about you for centuries, right? trampled underfoot what's reasonable god says come on y'all let's reason it out and this is now where isaiah would have been stunned and shocked because what god said next would have been the farthest thing from isaiah's mind what god said next was something no one could have seen coming because what isaiah would have expected would have been something like this he would have expected god to say oh judah though your sins are like scarlet though your nation stained with blood you're gonna pay for it personally you're gonna pay for it personally a person gets what's coming to them after all Or maybe Isaiah would have expected, though your sins are as scarlet, Judah, daughter of Zion, uh, offer an animal sacrifice and you'll be good. The the blood of an animal can take away your sin. Either way, Isaiah was expecting someone to pay for the wrongs of a nation because he's standing after all where? In that moment, he's in the courtroom with God and in a courtroom when there's a crime, when multiple crimes have been committed, someone always pays. Otherwise, justice isn't served. So how will these sins be paid for? Who will take the penalty for the crimes committed against God? Look what here. Then God says against Isaiah's imagination. He says, though your sins are like scarlet Judah, though you're stained, though you've been unfaithful to your promise to me, though you've not gone after righteousness and justice, you are going to be as pure as snow. You're going to be as soft and clean as a lamb's wool that's been washed. And he's saying here, I'm going to give you a gift you don't deserve. And you never could have earned on your own. And by the way, let me tell you why I think that's important for you and me to hear today, that kind of talk. Because most of us, our culture, we have a hard time a day with that message, the message of the gospel, because it tells us first we're unworthy of God's love, right? That's hard for us to hear, right? We hear the word sin, right? You're a sinner. And we think, dude, sin, whatever. All I do is win, right? <laughs> we hear distance from God, that's his problem. Who wouldn't want to know me? We hear stained, we think stains, like regrets, YOLO. You only live once, but underneath it all, let me tell you what I think is there. I think underneath all of our ego, 
all of our selfies, selfie sticks, magazines called Self. (laughs) And all the you're just beautiful how you are campaigns, as well-meaning as those are, I get it. We just pose like we're okay. And we use our likes, we use our images, we use vacation after vacation after vacation and money and power and position and sex and authority or whatever, career, in a desperate attempt at self-salvation and cosmic validation. Because what happens to you? How do you feel when you get passed over? for that promotion, huh? When you get criticized, when you don't get the likes or the shares or the realization that maybe you'll never be all that. Many of us, we fall apart. That taste, that feeling, we fall apart. And that's what hell is. It's hell. See, when the Bible talks about the fire of hell, and I'm working it all in the day. All right. <laughs> It's really pointing to something worse than fire. It's pointing to eternal disintegration, falling apart for forever. You know that thing that you feel when people really reject you or you don't, you don't make the sale, right? Oh, God. Or you hit send when you didn't mean to, when you can't get the relationship back. It's ruined because it was really bad, right? That sense of the thing falling apart, that horror in your mouth, that's the taste of hell forever, see? That's what hell is. And therefore, in essence, what this life is, is a choice of what you think will hold you forever, what will hold you together forever. And Isaiah 1 is telling you, it better not be anything in this world, because those things are false crutches, sand castles. But look what God promises here. He says, though you have attempted to hold yourself together with something, either you're turning a blind eye to justice and feeling good how you are in your social structure, in your demographic, or with your sexual sin and making your body feel good all the time, I can make you just like how you should have been all along. I can make you something you can never be on your own. I can make you new. And that's the promise of Christmas. Almost at Christmas. But how could that happen? How could the promise come true? Number three, here's how. Let's go back into the courtroom for a minute because when a crime is committed, right, when, it was, when a verdict's handed out, which it was, a sentence is always served, but if the people aren't going to be held as guilty... And an animal isn't going to be sacrificed, who is? I mean, if God has put all the people out of the courtroom, he's put all the animals out of the courtroom, who's the only one left in the courtroom? God is. God is. How could the promise of Christmas come true? How could a people, even a nation, be made new and right? But we don't see it here in the pilot episode. (laughs) But a few seasons later in his book, Isaiah shows us. Because all through the book, Isaiah says, there's someone who's coming. There's someone who's coming. There's someone who's coming. And one day, Isaiah says, chapter 53, this is what that someone is going to do. Here's what's going to happen. Chapter 53, season 53, verse 3, he says, he was despised. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering. 
and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, Isaiah is seeing as he's trying to sketch a picture of, of, of Christmas one day. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. But surely, Isaiah, is, he's seeing this against all odds, all his imagination. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed we all like sheep oh we gone astray each of us is turned to our own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all he was oppressed afflicted yet he didn't open his mouth he was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent so he did not open his mouth isaiah saying every other lamb that's ever lived has run away from the slaughter. Every other lamb is bleated. It's resisted. But this lamb, God's lamb is different. This lamb will climb up on the altar himself. And this lamb, we know, did not bleat, didn't open his mouth. The lamb laid down, took our punishment. And Isaiah says, there's a person, Judah, people of the world, coming into the world who will be God's lamb and God's lamb will do for you what you could never do for yourselves. Oh, who would it be? When would he come? The people waited and they waited and they waited for century after century, 800 years they waited and they wouldn't know who this lamb was until the last and final and greatest covenant watcher came, a man named John the baptizer, the last prophet of the old covenant. And he saw Jesus of Nazareth and he pointed to him and he said, there he is. Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And one day, Jesus would, he did. One day, this Lamb, who was really the judge, stepped out of the courtroom of heaven, put on skin, was born into poverty, was ground down by the brutality of an empire, and suffered, was tortured, a victim of an unjust trial, and was crucified, put to death. Why? He wasn't just crucified for you, although that's amazing. It's better. He wasn't just crucified for you. Hear me. He was crucified as you, as you, so that now, 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 as another writer, another John said, so that all, for the, all those who would receive him, they would be given. He said, the right, the right. It's a courtroom word, legal language. John said, for all those who would receive him, put their trust in him as their choice for what would hold him together forever. For all those who did that, John said, they get the right to be called children of God. Children of God for forever. No taking it back. And that's the promise of Christmas. So simple. So simple. See, no matter how complicated your life is today, no matter how dark it's gotten, I know for some of you, it's gotten real dark this year. The promise of Christmas is that no matter what you've done, no matter how complicated your life is, like Judah's was or Israel's was, you can be made new again. The night I became a Christian, 1995, it's a prayer I prayed. I walked into a room at the University of Houston campus. A friend of mine invited me. I prayed that prayer. I said, God, make me new. 
There was a man who called me out of the crowd. He began to do not Old Testament prophecy, but New Testament prophecy, lowercase p, began to say things about me only a supernatural God could know. That man didn't know me. I didn't know him, but God knew us both, used him to speak a message like Isaiah to me. Holy Spirit began to touch me. Like I believe he's touching some of you right now. I began to be aware there was something bigger, greater than me, and I wasn't in line with that, wasn't serving that. I prayed, God, make me new. And I wept. I cried. God changed me, surrendered my will to him. That was the difference. And everything changed. And what it takes is this. What the prophets have always said, and what you've got to do, what a Christian must do to become a Christian is you just repent. That means you turned your back on where you've been, and you follow something else for forever, Jesus, the Lamb of God, the promise of Christmas, who makes us new.